Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Arthur Sear of Carthage College. Joe Detmar, who was at the World Trade Center on 9-11, and Ryan Yantis, who was at the U.S. Pentagon on 9-11. Our program tonight, coming to you from our own base, WYND Radio Studios in beautiful Elk Road Village, Illinois, 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number, 1-800-723-8289. Tonight's program is going to be focused on the, the remembrance that we have uh, what transpired 20 years ago yesterday, but also the role in the United States today, how it is, how the war on terrorism has evolved over 20 years. So we will be getting into some contemporary issues uh, relating to 9-11. It will, it will not be totally reflective, but the first hour we'll, we'll look back with people that were there. And uh, we are joined in studio by Ryan Yantis. And uh, Ryan Yantis, uh, 20 years ago yesterday, uh, was in the Pentagon working. And a little bit later on, we'll hear from Joe Detmar, and he was in the World Trade Center on the 105th floor on that day. So let me begin, Ryan, you're in studio with us. Uh, What's the first memory you have that something uh, on 9-11 was uh, askew in your day? I'd say when I came out of a morning meeting and we had initial reports uh, on the news about uh, the attack on uh, World Trade Center or the incident in the World Trade Center. And the initial reports were it was an accident and the situation was developing. And what were you doing that day? I was an Army spokesman. My job was to help people understand what Army policies re- revolved around personnel and our soldiers. And where, and where were you located uh, in connection with where the actual impact on the Pentagon took place? My office was in 2E636. The plane hit on the outer E-ring of the Pentagon at Corridor 4 on a shallow angle towards Corridor 5. So at 9.30, I was standing feet away from Corridor 4 having a discussion with another officer about where a meeting was supposed to be. I convinced him that we needed to ask for information. So we went, we made a call, and we walked into uh, an office on Corridor 7 where the meeting was being held. Now, the Pentagon is a big building, but you can get anywhere inside the building if you know where you're going within three to five minutes at normal pace. And that day, we were walking much faster than normal pace. Joe Detmar, we go to you. You were at the World Trade Center. Uh, you were headed to work that day. What, what, what work did, or what job did you have at that day? Well, actually, you know, to make it even uh, more special, I was visiting New York from my job in Chicago. Uh, okay. I worked uh, for CNA Insurance as an insurance exec for them at the time and uh, was a resident of Aurora, Illinois. So I happened to just be there in New York for a meeting. Uh, not unusual for us guys to be called to a meeting at the Trade sure. Center. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, I came in uh, that day for this meeting that was supposed to commence at 8.30 and was uh, escorted into an internal conference room on 105, uh, internal meeting inside the 105th floor, uh, four walls, no windows, one door, and uh, 54 of us were in that meeting uh, when the plane hit the North Tower. Uh, We didn't see, hear, or feel anything, but we were 
told immediately to evacuate because there had been an explosion in the North Tower. And I know that all 54 people got out of that mm-hmm. conference room that day because I was the last guy out of that room. Uh, we were How were you evacuated? How were you evacuated? 105th floor fire stairwell. Yeah, we were, we were escorted over to the 105th floor fire stairwell. Okay. And we were told that we were going to walk down 105 flight okay. systems. Uh, as you can imagine, a lot of happy people. <laughs> but the, the, how, the but reaction how, how was different. How early, how we how early Joe, uh, Joe, how early in that process of walking down the fire exit stairwell did you or someone in that group realized that something uh, horrible had happened in the other tower. We got down to the 90th floor and the fire stairwell door was propped open and everybody, including myself, was filing out of the stairwell, fire stairwell onto the 90th. We got to look over to the North Tower. We saw the huge black holes, the gray, black smoke, the Flames redder than any red I'd ever seen before in my life, licking up the sides of that building. Uh-huh. We could see through that smoke, through that fire, and we could see into the building and see pieces of a fuselage of a large plane lodged inside the building. Uh, we never in our wildest dreams saw it as a, a terrorist attack. We thought it was an aviation accident, right. and uh, we still were in shock. I always tell people it was the worst 30, 40 seconds of my life watching yeah. what I was watching. Now, how, how long did you stay on the 90th floor? Because when you got to the 90th floor, there had to be uh, many other people waiting there. Where did you go next? Uh, back to the fire stairwell, despite the fact okay. that they were announcing in the building that uh, if you worked in the South Tower, they felt the South Tower was safe. They suggested that you return to your workstation. And if you were a visitor, they suggested that you stay where you were until further notice. I was not going to do that. I just felt that it was prudent to get out. And I went back to the fire stairwell and started my way down. And what was the next? Uh, now, that stairwell, uh, it had. Uh, there were more than 54 people uh, in the stairwell at that time, I would think. So how, how crowded did it get? And were yeah. people falling? Were people pushing? Uh, what, was the, what was the human dynamic there? I think I think that's a fair question, but I got to tell you, because we started at 105, which was the highest occupied level of the building, there weren't a lot of people behind us, even with some people that right. we picked up along the way. Right. A lot of people stayed in their position because of that announcement and didn't move. So it was not pandemonium, as you might think. It was moving along pretty smoothly, uh, and everything in the South Tower building was working fine. We had our ventilation air conditioning, uh, we had our electricity, the elevators were going up and down. So there wasn't any reason to immediately panic in that building. Okay. So you continued to go down uh, from the 90th floor. Uh, What was the next opportunity for you to see the devastation in the other tower? You had already seen it once, so you probably didn't need to see it a second time. But uh, how much further did you walk down? Well, that's a that's a great point. You know, you're right. You didn't need to see it another time. And honestly, we did not see anything again until we got out of the building uh, and across the street in front of St. Paul's Chapel. So it was virtually 40, 45 minutes after the first time we saw what was going on that we got out of the building, looked back, and saw the 
devastation and saw the ticker tape of concrete, steel, and bodies. Is my time frame correct that it took you about an hour to get to completely walk down all the stairs and get out of the building? Yeah, 50, 51 minutes. 51 That's minutes. Okay. So you're it's just about the right time. Okay. And uh, when we come back, I want to pick up your story. We're also going to pick up Ryan Yantis' story. Art Sear from Carthage College is here. And also, our phone lines open 1-800-723-8289. If there's anyone listening this evening that would like to question our guests, feel free to do so. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, <laughs> tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.
Bruce Dumont, we continue with Beyond the Beltway. We have two survivors of the 9-11 attack. One is Joe Detmar. He joins us uh, via Zoom. And uh, Ryan Yantis joins us in studio, along with Art Sear from Carthage College. And a little bit later on, we will be talking about the, the, the broader ramifications, the way the United States responded to the 9-11 attack, and all that has taken place uh, just basically within the last month on the issue of Afghanistan and the war on terror, and also uh, all of the reactions uh, from uh, leaders um, big and famous and small and insignificant uh, that took place yesterday. Ryan Yantis is in studio. I want to. We're going to get back to 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 Joe, but uh, Joe at the end of the first segment was had successfully uh, made it outside of the building. We're going to find out what happened to him next because at this point, when he got out of the building, uh, the second plane had not hit. But uh, Joe saw that, and we'll hear that in just a moment. But I want to go back to Ryan Yantis, who was now inside or, or was inside the Pentagon at that point, and uh, pick up your story, uh, Ryan, where you were and uh, uh, when you realized the devastation and uh, the ramifications of what had happened. Well, at about 9.30, another officer and I were at the junction between Wedge 1, the recently renovated Wedge with 3 and 4 in it, quarters three and four and we were on the e-ring and we were supposed to be at a meeting that started at 9 30 but he didn't know the room number that we were going to and he said it's a conference room in corridor four i pointed out sir there are five floors five rings lots of options let's call and ask where we need to be we did that walked into the army operations center near corridor seven at 9 37 and the reason why i know it was then is that's when the alarms went off and uh, the security guard at the door, an army sergeant, looked up and he said, gentlemen, there's been an explosion. You need to evacuate. Okay, Sarge, great. Where's the explosion? Well, corridor four by the helipad. But now, it was described as an explosion, not uh, explosion. hit by an airline. Correct. But this was a yep. secondhand report right. via phone to him, and he told us there was an explosion. And uh, I immediately went back up to our office because we had... Uh, workforce that was very diverse. We had some older people with mobility issues. One of my uh, very valued colleagues was uh, in her eighth month of pregnancy, and uh, I was very concerned about her. We had a, high, a college intern on day two of a 16-week internship. She had just arrived that morning. And one of the things Army and leaders in the military do is you take care of your people, the people take care of the mission. So my job was to get up there, find them, take care of them, make sure they had evacuated. By the time I came up, they had all, uh, our offices were empty. Uh, and then I basically started working the corridor back and forth down the E-ring towards the impact site, making sure that the offices were clear. When did you first hear that it was an attack? Well, I knew it was an attack as soon as I was told there was an explosion. Okay. We had knowledge in the Pentagon, as I, I mentioned last segment, I watched the TV and saw the, the second plane hit at 9.03 okay. in New York. So the, the media relations... The second the, plane, you saw this, okay. Well, we had the initial reports from 8.46, American Airlines 11, had hit it. the tower. Okay. That was an accident, incident, mishap, and people were trying to figure out, then watching the TV, and 9.03, it was apparent either the laws of physics change instantly or it's a deliberate act by someone. Okay. And I so had then to, the next the next thing that went through your mind is when you heard the word explosion, 
you thought that this was a continuation of what you had seen with your own eyes in New York on television. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes and no, because my first thought was my people are up there. I don't know what the impact site or what the explosion site was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mm-hmm. one thing that the bad guys have, the terrorists have, is they have opportunities to do things in different ways. The fact on 9-11 that they used four hijacked commercial airliners was uh, evil elegance because they figured out how to do something and use our knowledge and practices against us. But it was unipolar. There was only one platform of attack. And when the FAA grounded all the aircraft and uh, wouldn't let any more take off, that eliminated that vector of attack on 9-11. And that was an administrative FAA decision, not law enforcement or military. How many died at the Pentagon? 184 innocent children, women, and men. How many were close friends of yours? I had uh, four colleagues that I knew, uh, respected, and and dealt with on a personal basis. Um, and you got to understand, in the military, you have a handful of very, very close friends, and then you have colleagues that you work with and respect and rely on. Uh, you know, their voices being stilled, that's certainly troubling. Joe, back to you uh, in New York. You've, you've made it out of, the, of your tower where you were uh, having a, a meeting. Uh, you're outside. Are there police and firemen shooing you to go away from the, uh, as far away from the building? How are you being treated once you hit the, 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 the ground floor there as a, as a group of uh, how, how, how many were in that group at the time? Uh, well, at the time I escaped the building, uh, just myself and a compatriot of mine, not even somebody that was in that same meeting as me, yeah. we were coming out together uh, as just a, you know two guys. But, Bruce, before we go any further, you had mentioned earlier, I was in the South Tower. I was between the 74th and the 72nd floor when the second plane went through our building. Okay. We did not realize that's what it was, but we were just three or four flights below the strike zone. So we were in the building when that second tower, uh, when the South Tower was hit. Describe, describe how, describe what the feeling was. Another 40 minutes or so to get out. Describe how you, how uh, the impact of uh, being in the building when this other plane hit. Yeah, that was incredible. You're in a fire stairwell, concrete bunker, so to speak. And that thing starts rocking back and forth back and forth unbelievably um the concrete spidering out the handrails breaking away from the walls the steps are like waves in the ocean undulating underneath your feet we feel this heat ball blowing by us we smell jet fuel and the thing keeps rocking back and forth back and forth back for you it, it just feels like forever maybe it was a few seconds maybe a minute uh and you know when it when it settled you would think we would all respond with craziness and screaming and pandemonium, but there was no response other than a total stunned silence from those of us that were in that stairwell at that time. It was like almost a state of shock. Yeah. I, you know, a state of maybe shock, disbelief. Um, our cell phones weren't working because the main cell tower was on top of the North tower. Mm-hmm. So the cell service was gone. We are in the dark completely, not literally, but in the dark from a communications perspective. We're in the dark from an information perspective. Unlike Ryan, who kind of knew what was going on, we're in there and we have no clue what's going on. And so 
to re overreact would have been an improper way to react. It was more, you know, stunned. It just mm -hmm. what in the name of God just happened. And that's, that was the initial reaction that we all had. Well, how long, I asked you in the first segment, how long it took you to get out of the building from your, your first inkling that something was, was askew. Uh, but after the impact of the plane in the second tower, uh, how long did it take you from that point after, as you say, uh, there was radio silence, there was no phone, and lights were flickering, and all these other horrendous things of, of building crumbling taking place? How long did it take you to get out of the building uh, in that stairwell, to literally to be outside in the, in the, the, the right. no fresh air, but the air? Well, well. Let's let's do the math, okay? We know that it was 17 minutes between the first hit and the second hit. Uh -huh. We were beyond uh, the first. We were beyond the strike zone when our building was hit. So we were 17 mm -hmm. minutes into the trip. The whole trip took us 50, 51 minutes out. So we had another uh, what? That would be 43 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no, 33 minutes, 34 minutes after the building was hit until we finally got out. Were people uh, getting back to the people in the stairwell? Uh, you say they were somewhat shocked, but I mean, were people falling? I mean, were were there people with heart conditions that were having uh, apparent heart attacks? I mean, how 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 was the how was this collective bodies reacting to moving down all those stairs? <clears throat> one of the finest, one of the finest uh, moments of human nature that I've ever seen in all my life because there were people that were in that stairwell that were coming out of a, a wheelchair on crutches coming in with a cane freaking out because they didn't know what was going on highly emotional and everybody else in that stairwell that was doing okay we just helped coach to coax them down mm -hmm. the steps we helped them physically we helped them emotionally uh it was actually a, a, a total thing of beauty, a, a whole thing of unity. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, there was no black, white. There was no red. There was no blue. Mm -hmm. There was no uh, Jew or Christian. It was just human beings, and we're helping each other out to get down. When you got to the base of the building, uh, were there obviously a lot of police and fire? Uh, were you being escorted quickly to, uh, to a location, and, and, and where were you going at that point? other than just getting away from the building. Yeah, well, yeah when we got down into uh, to the lobby level, uh, they couldn't let us out at the street level. Obviously, it was raining concrete, steel, and bodies. So uh, they escorted us down into the concourse, all the uniforms that were there, took us down into the concourse or the underground. That's the chance we had for the first time to see people that were in real need, missing limbs, gaping wounds, real blood and gut stuff. Uh, but there were so many cops, firefighters, paramedics, first responders there uh, to aid and assist them. It was incredible. Uh, and the rest of us, we were basically on our own uh, because there, everybody, those that needed help were getting the help that they needed. And we just had to make it on our own to figure out where to go and how to get out. Joe, we're going to pause uh, with uh, Ryan and Art Sear. We will continue with both of your stories and also some uh, questions and comments from Art Sear as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thank you very much for joining us for this 20th anniversary commemorative of the 9-11 attacks. It's a bully. 
But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. Uh, a lot of veterans. It's open enrollment, though. Bruce Dumont back. We are on the air, and uh, we are joined. In fact, we're going to take a moment, like we like we generally do, and we're going to ask each of our guests to explain uh, what they're doing now and a little bit. Uh, they know. Everyone knows why they're here tonight. But, uh, Joe, we're going to start with you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you were a, an insurance agent uh, 20 years ago. What sort of work are you doing now? I've been in the insurance business now for 44 years. I've been in different executive mm-hmm. roles. I'm currently uh, vice president in charge of commercial underwriting for an organization called Swift LLC. been with them for about five years. Okay. And... Uh, 
even though I'm going to be turning the tender age of 65 in a few weeks, uh, I have no intention of retiring at this point. Okay. I think uh, as long as they continue to pay me, I'm going to keep going on. Good, good, good idea. Uh, Ryan Yantis, tell us, everybody, what, what you've been up to. You've been a guest on this program frequently for the last at least 10 years, so tell us what you're up to. Well, Bruce, thank you. Uh, I'm still doing leadership training, coaching, and uh, public speaking, and I've had to add the word writer to my resume and to my business card, along with Joe Detmar, five other World Trade Center survivors, and another Pentagon survivor. We put out a book uh, during the pandemic via Zoom, via email. So the book is called 9-11 Survivor Stories, Midwest Memories. It's available on Amazon. And in that book, as I said, you get the, uh, the chapter from each of the survivors, and it's their first-person account. Mm-hmm. And the neat thing about it, it's all men and women from the Midwest or who have strong ties to the Midwest mm-hmm. found themselves at that pivotal point of history. It is not a rigorous historical book. It's personal accounts. Right. And uh, we're very proud of it. Right. Well, I'm, I'm proud that you are here tonight to give your first-person uh, account uh, on Beyond the Beltway for our fans and our listeners and viewers all over the country. And by the way, on that subject, I mentioned uh, I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but again, if you go to the, to the website of this program, beyondthebeltway.com, the website, beyondthebeltway.com, we are now airing or now launching... The broadcast that we did 20 years ago following the 9-11 attack, I was on vacation in Sweden. I had a couple of shows in the can, as I normally did if I went on vacation. When the 9-11 attack took place, I knew I could not play the second show because it was so dated. So I moved to do my program live from Radio Sweden, which is their equivalent to public radio. Uh, It was about four or five days after the attack. And I put my program together, and we did it live from Stockholm, Sweden. But you get the semi-instant reaction from listeners. I listened to it this afternoon. There's lots of callers. Art Sear, who was with me this evening, was with me 20 years ago offering his semi-instant analysis. It's very good, Art. I listened to it. Uh, you're pretty much on target with a lot of stuff. Uh, but again, I, I, I mentioned to everyone, it really is sort of a riveting discussion. It isn't just, I'm not just plugging an old show, but this is an old show that has some historical significance to it. So beyondthebeltway.com, and again, it's the program from 20 years ago this week, and again, I think you will find it uh, very, very uh, interesting. Not entertaining. It's interesting. It's a moment. It's a slice of, of history. And again, uh, to uh, to every everyone that got involved in that, Kevin Fuller was screening calls. We had, we had some really great calls from all over the country. Uh, and we also talked about uh, one of the things that, that we talked about on that uh, that I made a big point of was uh, was was our southern border giving more attention to our southern border for my fear that uh, many uh, terrorists would be using the sieve on our southern border to enter the United States. That has not been proven conclusively this t- at this moment in time. There's certainly been anecdotal stories about it. It's still a fear of mine because our, our southern border is such a sieve. But uh, again, for those, uh, uh, the President uh, Bush at the time used the term evildoers, I think 20 years later, we know that there are still evildoers in the world. We'll talk more about that in the second hour of this evening. But Art Sear, you wanted to make a, a comment uh, or a question uh, based on what you've heard thus far this evening. 
Yeah, it reminds me, um, among other things, of uh, the fantastic courage showed by our British friends during or at the beginning of World War II during the endless, seemingly German terror bombing that started in 1940. Uh, it was well before Pearl Harbor by more than a year, but the demonstration of stoicism and courage in the face of incendiary bombs and targeting civilians was crucial, I think, in turning American public opinion much more strongly toward Britain. Mm-hmm. Ryan, back to your story. When when did you understand that the Pentagon was responding quickly, uh, dealing internally with all those that worked there who had perished, and that you instantly realized, or was it instantly realizing, that America was about to go to war and retaliate against those who did the dastardly act? Well, and, and Bruce, you're giving me a lot more credit than uh, my mental capacity will allow. I was going from action to action and basically breaking down into what the military would call battle drills. Get mm-hmm. upstairs, find out if my people are safe. If people are safe, go and clear offices. Uh, I was in the E-ring near the turn between corridor 6 and 5, uh, and I had not found anybody who needed help, didn't find anybody and every time I came across the corridor and was out in the hallway, a security guard at the corridor at 6 exit would see me and holler, hey, sir, you need to evacuate. And I studiously ignored him. Uh, just about then, there was a dull thump from around the corner, and a thick roll of black smoke came around. I was there in Army Class B uniform, which is short sleeve uh, wool and polyester shirt with a polyester and wool slacks. <coughs> I wasn't equipped physically to go any further. And he hollered at me one last time, hey, sir, you need to leave. And I, I mentally agreed, yep, you're right. And I left the building. And it was the right thing to do. Uh, me going around that corner, I may have found somebody. I may not have. That's something that will bother me for as long as I live. But contributing to the casualty list was one thing I was trying not to do. I went when out. You, when you, but when you got outside, when you went as far as away as, as you could on that day, Pentagon is a huge, the, the surrounding area is a huge area as well. Right. What was going through your mind? I wanted to find my people and account for my teammates. And that was the, the first driving priority. I got outside on the, the impact side, the western face of the corridor, and I could see plane parts in the grass, and I could see the face of the building, it seemed like most of it was on fire, that, that heavy red oily flame, people walking and running to the building, um, injured walking away. And I knew we were missing people. I talked to a sergeant briefly. Then I ran to Corridor 8, which is the north exit of the Pentagon, to look for our teammates. But when I got there, there were more injured coming from the building. And that's when I grabbed a nearby stretcher and for the next 45 minutes to an hour, that's what I did, is I ran back and forth from safety to the building, into the building, to get people, pick them up, and carry them out of the building. And, Bruce, I keep saying I, me, but it was us, we. I was not alone. Uh, there were men, women, all walks of life, uh, civilians who had been driving by, who stopped their car and just wanted to come in and help. And there was even a Catholic priest who had been on his way to Arlington National Cemetery to do a military funeral, and he was in the full formal regalia of a priest doing that kind of ser- service, and he stopped to help. Joe, we left when we left left your story, 
you were outside the building, you were in a concourse, you would seen the devastation and, and, and lives either lost or uh, in, in great, uh, great agony, uh, police and fire as well as individuals that you didn't know their background. Um, when you got through that, when, when you got to a point where it looked like you were going to be safe, what was going through your mind? How were you replaying the last hour of your life at that time? Yeah, you, you. I don't know exactly when I did feel safe. Somebody asked that question to me earlier today, and I told them I didn't feel safe until I got back to Aurora. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was that type of event where even the day after while we're driving from Philadelphia to uh, Aurora, Illinois, I still, even though I knew there, there were no planes in the sky, I kept, still kept peeking out of the windshield, wondering is something else going to happen. Um, we felt relatively safe when we got across the street in front of St. Paul's Chapel. Even though we could see this devastation, and even though their uniforms are screaming at us to run, 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 we felt, okay, we're out of there. And um, we kind of got jumped back into fear when that sound of the building collapsing came down, and we were only eight blocks north of the complex at that point. So that fear kind of hits again, and you don't know exactly what's going to happen at that particular point in time um we got lucky we were able to uh, get into uh, a, a compatriot of mine uh his friend's apartment in the trebecca section of the city and we watched the tv just like everybody else for the next five hours trying to figure out what were we going to do where were we going to do where were we going to go how were we going to get home or out of new york city or whatever it was that we were going to try to do we were basically trapped and just kind of holding on, trying to figure out what was next. Was there any, uh, or, or how soon did you have some type of telephone communication to let people back in Aurora know that uh, Joe Dittmar was alive and well? <laughs> um, because the landlines were overmatched to, uh, with uh, all the communication people were trying to do and because the cell service was out. It took us about five, five and a half hours until I finally got a landline, was able to actually get my mom in Philadelphia because I guess the lines were clearer in Philadelphia. And I always kid people calling your mom's like calling a news outlet because she did start to call everybody and let people know what was going on and then joe, after that we've got it uh, we've got know, a next, joe we've got a break right now or... sorry we do have to break that shortly hi i'm dr nia hurt garris with today's tip for kids from the american academy of pediatrics As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner, Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy, Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Stand by. All right. Bruce Dumont back. We are on the air. And, uh, Joe, you've got to leave us uh, very very soon. But I, I do want to ask you uh, one, one other question. When you say that uh, you got into a car, uh, you were able to reach your mother in Philadelphia, you were making your way back from New York uh, to Aurora, realizing that you had survived this horrendous attack. You had seen the television when you went to the apartment in in Tribeca uh, and watched television nonstop for five or six hours. Uh, When did you learn that another attack had been aborted and ended up in a field in Shankford, Pennsylvania, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Joe, are you, did you hear that question? Joe, I guess we, have we lost Joe? Joe, are you there? Speak up if, you, if you're there. If not, uh, let me ask uh, Ryan Yantis the same question. Uh, the uh, I didn't have any knowledge about what happened in Shanksville for a number of days. Um, we had heard 
uh, that afternoon uh, that there was another plane, but it had gone down, but we didn't have any details. And now that I'm thinking about it, I think it might have been mentioned during um, Mr. Rumsfeld's press conference in the Pentagon. Um, After I had done the uh, running back and forth in and out of the building carrying people, and we finally got uh, our injured evacuated, I was walking back to the building to come in. Security guards are still waving us away. And, And again, I'm not by myself. And I was about 50 feet from the corridor eight door, and a jet fighter flew in low and fast from the north. And that second, when you can hear a jet engine coming in behind you, and they are using jets to attack, uh, it's a very uh, heart-in-the-throat type of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was about the only time I was scared during the day of 9-11. Uh, but it was a jet fighter. I thought it was great. Uh, and then months later, I learned that they probably didn't have ammunition for their guns and missiles for their weapon systems. I understand Joe is now back on the line okay. with this. Joe, my same question to you is, as you're driving back through, through Pennsylvania, uh, when did you learn that uh, there were heroics in the skies over uh, Pennsylvania that day? Yeah, I didn't. It was only when I got home on the 12th and actually caught on to exactly what had occurred uh, because of uh, just the delay in getting communication on all the things. So it wasn't until the day we were, I was driving back from uh, Philadelphia at that point to, uh, uh, to Aurora that I actually heard that uh, we had 40 heroes on that plane that uh, took it down so that it wouldn't hit the Capitol or the White House. Did, has it ever been conclusively proven that that plane was where it was going, whether it was going to the White House, which was the initial response, and then this, the, the narrative took over that it was the Capitol. Ryan, do we really know exactly what that plane was headed towards? One, uh, no, I don't exactly know. What I tend to believe is a preponderance of evidence is it was sent, they intended to have it go to the Capitol. It might have had a secondary target if the Capitol was already hit. And again, we don't have perfect knowledge. Uh, the terrorists operated inside the decision cycle of U.S. government and U.S. military and did things faster than we could react. And we just don't know. Joe, it's 20 years plus now. Uh, how did this change your life, your personal life? I um, pardon the car. But I, uh, I uh, have really been able to much better prioritize what's the most important thing in life. Um, you get a great sense of what's most important to you, the love of your family, the love of your spouse. Uh, these things, uh, you know, just become West, much more important to you when you're faced with that type of life or death circumstance. And, you know, you've got this second chance. And I try to use the second chance for good. I've been busy this entire week doing interviews and talking about 3,000 people who lost their lives and letting their voices once more be heard. And that's that's what makes me tick at this point in time. That's what makes me go. And that's the uh, uh, the the, uh, the oomph behind what I do on a routine basis anymore. Tell me what uh, your group in Chicago is all about, uh, Ryan. You mentioned the book a little bit earlier that Joe participated in. Uh, how large is that group? Do they meet regularly? What's, obviously, they've been busy the last 48 hours. Well, and we have been, all the survivors have been 
to their level of comfort, been very busy 48 hours. Uh, it's American Pride is the, the group. It is a nonprofit headquartered out of Dyer, Indiana, and it is a group that is intended to help survivors go and tell their stories and talk to audiences, whether it's school kids or churches, libraries, businesses, other organizations. And it's just a, a mechanism so our survivors have some support and some protection when they go and they do this. Uh, and nobody goes broke being asked to go and talk at a Rotary Club that's two and a half hours away. Because there are a lot of people out there who are very interested in the story um, and, and don't necessarily have the budget to help us cover our, our cost. We're a result of the survivors gathering together at Willow House, which is a nonprofit that provided support and grief services to victim families of 9-11. And then, due to Joe's beautiful effort, he called them up and said, I'm glad you're taking care of victim families. What about us survivors? There are a bunch of us out here. And that was, I think, early in the summer of 2004, right before I met Joe. Uh, and Joe and I encountered each other at Shanauer Memorial in Naperville. We were introduced. I got a big bear hug from him, and that was what brought me into the community of survivors here in Chicago. Well, it seems to be a very important mission, not only for you two, but also for anyone that survived it, because there's a whole generation, obviously, that doesn't remember what uh, happened 20 years ago. And uh, uh, just, I mean, there's a, a large number of people, Art, you deal with them in the classroom, that just don't know what happened. So I'm, I'm very interested in, in the ongoing education within the public school systems, as well as through the various educational opportunities that your group is providing. So again, Ryan Yantis, you're gonna continue with this in hour number two as we sort of bring this story up to its unfortunate end involving the Taliban. But to Joe Detmer, thank you very much for being with us tonight and sharing your very personal story. We appreciate it very much and uh, congratulations for stepping up and telling this story, it has to be told. Thanks very much. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly. Thanks for allowing me to be here. I Thank you. Thank you. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. 
Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont, we are back with hour number two. As I said just a few moments ago, this is Bruce Dumont. We're back for hour number two. And uh, we do have one caller. Uh, we didn't take a lot of callers in uh, uh, hour number one. But someone has been standing by. Edward, who listens to this program in Chicago on our flagship station, WYND. Uh, he's been standing by. Go ahead, Edward. You're on the air. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, I wanted your panel to comment on John O'Neill. He unfortunately died on uh, 9-11, but he was with the FBI, and he would have been a great FBI, uh, you know, director. Uh-huh. So I want to get your panel on that. Uh, well, I don't know uh, John McNeil. I certainly know the story of him, but any else want to comment on uh, whether or not he would have been a good FBI director? <laughs> And unfortunately, I don't know the gentleman. Yeah, um, can't we can't help you on that one, Edward? Maybe our caller, could. Edward. Let, Ed, what 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 makes you think that he would be a good FBI director or would have been a good FBI director? Well, because I I think of terrorism uh, as uh, counterintelligence, uh, human you know spying and all that, and I'm afraid that nowadays people like uh, Monica Crowley want to get into more of this uh, military, uh, uh, have them, you know, have, have them take them down in one country, as opposed to these terrorists are spread all around the globe, and somebody like John O'Neill would have been something to that, uh, into that area, as opposed to the military. Not that the military can't be used in a supporting role, but the spearhead should be human intelligence. Uh, counterintelligence. Okay, let's, ask, let's expand our discussion about uh, uh, how we conduct intelligence now, and uh, uh, your thoughts on it, Ryan. Well, and I am not an intelligence expert by any stretch, but there are but you all, are intelligent. Well, I hope so. There are all all the different domains of military and or federal intelligence. You've hit on human intelligence, counterintelligence, uh, signals intelligence, crypto intelligence. And you have to have the whole mosaic with all the different inputs to validate the information. And the Americans and the West, we tend to rely on the electronic and crypto tracking uh, information, where it comes from, how it's uh, transmitted, who receives it, and then what do they do with it. And we're pretty good at that. But I agree that I don't think we have the, the depth, the knowledge of cultural, in-culture, human intelligence, with these long-term assets 
that require nurturing and long-term care. Art, sir. Yes, indeed. Um, Colonel Yanis makes a very important point. The Americans historically, at least since the middle of the Cold War, started to rely more and more on electronic intelligence. We love technology in this country, uh, and we go to some lengths to try to protect our people. The Clinton administration, after the Cold War, it ended drastically cut back on intelligence spending, including human assets. My impression currently from the ivory tower is that the FBI relatively speaking still relies very much on human agents despite the Patriot Act and all the complications after 9-11 the FBI still has a principal domestic intelligence capacity so he makes a very good point are we Edward thanks very much thank you um, are we are we um, more safe today than we were 20 years ago, Ryan. Yes. Mark? Simply. I, I don't know. I would defer to Ryan, but there hasn't been a second strike. There has not been mm -hmm. a second strike. Now, some politicians uh, have been very quick to call domestic violence of a terrible, within the U.S., of a terrible sort. That's terrorism, including President Obama and his vice president at the time, Mr. Biden, uh, went out to Southern California. Basically, a crazed couple had committed some horrific mm -hmm. acts, and that was Islamic terrorism. Well, it wasn't. We have mm -hmm. not had a second strike like 9-11. So that's reassuring. That's reassuring that the system is working, at least so far. Well, and, and yeah. some of the, the, the weaknesses in the FAA NORAD uh, link-up on 9-11, because the military didn't have a means of tracking real-time commercial airliners the same way that the FAA did. The FAA had agency lead on tracking mm -hmm. domestic airspace. Compound on 9-11, 20 years ago, NORAD was doing a training exercise, imagining that a Soviet-style attacker was coming across the horizon with bombers and missiles. So they had Vigilant Guardian going on at the same time as the 9-11 attacks started to unfold. And they had to decouple the NORAD assets and the Air Force response from an exercise and say, no, boys and girls, this is real world, this is not a drill, and ratchet up readiness. Now, one of the outcomes, they've integrated NORAD and the FAA. They both see the same amount of information on commercial airliners. Mm -hmm. We've hardened the airliners. We've hardened the passengers, and I think that's the key of it. If somebody acts up on a commercial airliner today, they have a better chance of being duct taped to a, a seat and restrained by their fellow passengers than they would have going up to 9-11 because people are not going to go into a building easily. What, a big what, excuse me, what, okay. is, what is NORAD? I'm sorry. Colonel? Uh, NORAD is the uh, Northern Aerospace Defense Zone. In yep. Nor NORAD, right. And, and they're, they're, they, they are the protective shield over the United States from, from the air. In Canada. In Canada. Canada. It's so North America. Yeah, North, North America. America. Cold they're, in, they're in uh, Cheyenne Mountain, uh, Colorado. Yeah, and I would have to look that up to be sure. I'm well, an Army guy. I was there. I, I actually, many, many years ago, they, uh, NORAD was giving a tour to uh, uh, Junket to media people. And this was many, many, this is 25, 30 years ago. As a young journalist, I was invited uh, to go through uh, uh, NORAD. It was, it was quite impressive. And uh, uh, the, the big uh, war room looked very much like it 
appeared to be in many motion pictures, War and games. I actually sat in the chair where the, the the commanding general would would have sat had there been an attack on the United States. It was, you, uh, but you didn't push any buttons, did you? I know. I, they said don't touch any buttons. <laughs> I didn't touch any buttons. But I mean, I can I I remember it well. And again, it was uh, it was a riveting experience. Um, let us talk about the Taliban, Art, because. In the program that you appeared on 20 years ago, which people can hear at beyondthebeltway.com, and I'll retell that in just a moment for those that may have missed it, you talked about Pakistan, and you talked about Afghanistan, but you really talked a lot about Pakistan. And it's now 20 years later. We know that Pakistan was not very helpful in getting Osama bin Laden. They were more protective than than innovative in helping us find uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, they sit there with nuclear weapons, and uh, I guess my question to you in the next 20 years, are you fearful that Pakistan will become one of the biggest obstacles to, uh, uh, to our personal safety in this country? No, I'm not. Okay. They are uh, formerly an ally of ours way back during the Cold War. Um, Eisenhower's hardline... Secretary of State John Foster Dulles went around trying to reproduce NATO around the world, and Pakistan was a pivotal member of not one but two alliances, the Central Treaty Organization and the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. They have a strong Islamic movement. They have a very weak government. Uh, unless things have changed, we, they have nuclear weapons which are closely integrated. I'd appreciate being corrected if I'm out of date or wrong, but closely integrated with the U.S. military. We have interlocking systems with their nuclear weapons. So I'm not as worried as I would be otherwise. Okay, that's a, that's a piece of information you probably didn't hear on Meet the Press today. I didn't realize that we had military uh, uh, interlocking operations. Are they operations or deep? I, I don't know the details of the control systems, okay. uh, partly because they're classified. But we're working with them, yeah, and they're working closely. with them. Okay, well, that's good news. I'll sleep comfortably tonight. Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Pre-Diabetes Awareness Partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. 
When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Chris Dumont back, and we continue, and uh, Ryan Yantis uh, joins us. And uh, Ryan, we should mention by the you you were a, you were a colonel. We talked about what Lieutenant you were colonel. doing, Lieutenant Colonel. We we haven't given you the, the specifics and the, the military accolades that uh, you deserve. But uh, and again, you have not served in Afghanistan. Right. But the question that I had before the break was uh, uh, the future of our relations with Pakistan. And Art Seer put my mind a little bit at ease. Uh, but everyone has been reading the newspaper for the last couple of years knows that there's 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 a domestic growth and support, very strong support uh, for uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda and all forms of terrorism in Pakistan. Uh, but you tell us more because you think there's a there's this is there are divisions within Pakistan that may help protect the United States. Right. And I'm not a, a foreign area expert on Pakistan. I have worked with Pakistani units uh, during humanitarian missions in uh, the Balkans and elsewhere. And their army is generally good. But within the government of Pakistan, it's a weak central government. The internal security forces, ISI, is almost a state and nation unto itself. But the way I understand the Pakistani uh, culture to be, it relies much on the similar things for Afghanistan and elsewhere. It's who's in your clan, who's in your tribe, and, and what are your uh, your loyalty base. And it doesn't happen to go up to a large federal, uh, but it tends to stay down there in the local areas. But ISI is specifically, it's the intelligence apparatus. It's the secret police, if I might use that term. Right. Uh, it's, the, it's a policing force, not a, a military force. It, it's kind of a hybrid between that internal policing force and the CIA because they do cross-border operations. And the ISI uh, was the muscle and bag man uh, back when it was Charlie Wilson's war and we were helping support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And the ISI was the conduit and helped connect 
with the Taliban, which received most of the financial and weapons assistance from outside, from the West, uh, during that period of uh, the Afghan resistance to the Soviet occupation. One of the unintended consequences, once that, once the Soviets pulled out, and you still had ISI, who had a very strong footprint in Afghanistan, and there wasn't any opposition to it. And that's why the Taliban grew in stature, grew in power, and, and at the time, they had a very good community relations approach on how they were going to come in and solve and help people mm-hmm. solve problems. Then by the late 90s, uh, the wheels had come off the cart. They were executing women who were victims of rape uh, for adultery in a soccer field in, in Kandahar or Kabul. Um, horrific, uh, bad governance and bad leadership. And now... But they had, co- they had the cover of ISI. They still do have they the still protection have the cover, and right. support of ISI as and far clearly, as I know. Clearly, uh, had they been um, aggressive or had they been the, the security and the intelligence source that they purport to be to the rest of the world, they could have been and they should have been far more assistive to the United States in our search for Osama bin Laden because he could not have survived where he survived for as long as he did without ISI over, uh, coverage. With a, with a villa, a walled villa near yeah. the military academy of Pakistan, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it has to be known that he had sponsors and supporters within the Pakistani government, the regional command, and ISI. Aren't you still trust him? I don't think I they said sound, I, They sound, well, no, my, my, my I, I did not they say sound, I trust. They sound duplicitous. You did make the point that the military... Which uh, was different is different than 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 the ISI, that the military has had some cooperation with the United States and coordination insofar as the oversight of their nuclear weapons. Okay, so on that, you know, in that last segment, you sort of put my mind at ease that you had a, a significant force within Pakistan that was going to keep an eye on those nukes. And yet, on the other hand, as Ryan has explained, and I think you acknowledge, uh, they were not very helpful in getting Osama bin Laden. They currently are involved in in providing some uh, encouragement, if you will, to the Taliban. Uh, And they have to be very fearful or careful because a large portion of the Pakistani population um, has no problem with the Taliban or the way they treat women or anybody else. I shrink from interrupting Bruce Dumont, so this pause only reflects that. I didn't say I trusted them. I did refer to important practical military cooperation. Okay. And that's the only point I made. I don't have to acknowledge anything regarding... But do you acknowledge anything else? I mean, do you acknowledge what what Ryan I don't have to acknowledge anything, Bruce, because we're not in an adversarial situation, and I'm not defending anyone except the American people and the U.S. government. Well, okay. Right. I Please thought we continue. were. I thought we were in an adversarial position. No. You seem to be soft pedaling how important they might be. I'm not. I don't have to acknowledge you anything. See, actually, I don't well, have to acknowledge but anything, that's and I'm not than, soft pedaling. That's, different, I'm not that's so- different than twenty years ago. I Mark. shrank from. I shrank from ever interrupting Bruce Dumont. Please continue, <laughs> and then I'll talk. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you very much, Bruce. We're not in an adversarial situation. As far as I'm concerned, this is a serious information and educational exercise. We have very useful, given the anxiety that you had just expressed about Pakistan, we have a very useful practical military cooperation. And that's all I said. Okay. 
But I, but you won't acknowledge what Ryan said. I don't have to acknowledge it. I basically agree with him, Bruce. Okay, well that that's acknowledging it. That's all. That's what I was looking for. The, do you the, think he's do you think he's all wet, or do you think he has? There may be something there. That's all. You keep Art, putting words Art, in my so, mouth. You, Art, you're so you're so sensitive. That's not, at not all, what Bruce. I was saying. I'm only interested in clarity, and I would appreciate an accurate rephrasing of what I said. No, I'm not in well, any that's way. Not my job. I'm not in any way uptight about. Yeah, I realize you're trying to create excitement and trying to generate listenership and viewership. No, no. but that's why you're in business. No, don't but deny it. That's why we have you on the show, Art, so all that your fans will come in and join the conversation. We have the voice. Of that's why. That's why we're playing your your comments from 20 years ago on on Beyond the Beltway. We have the voice because I respected your opinion 20 years ago, and I respect your opinion now. We have a lot. So of, don't get too uptight with me, sir. I'm not at all. You've uptight. had air cover on this program for a well over 20 years. That's two decades. I don't think there's anybody else in town that's given you that microphone and that opportunity other than myself. As I was so saying. relax, cool it, back down. You're not, this is not meant to be adversarial. Okay? Now my next question to you, Art, is you mentioned during the break there were concerns that you had for China. Maybe concerns was the wrong word. What do you think of China's role is going to be in trying to to put Afghanistan back together again? Before I answer that, as I was trying to say before, we have in Colonel Yantis a very experienced and knowledgeable expert, and I'm very glad that we have the opportunity to listen to him at length. Regarding China, they are a principal rival of the United States. For the last few thousand years, South Asia has been extremely important for trade routes. That's becoming only more important in an age of globalization, and it's one reason why Afghanistan and South Asia generally are so significant. China has a huge commercial as well as military offensive going on in the region, and they're working very hard to develop stronger ties with Afghanistan. Since nobody has ever succeeded in doing that, I'm not particularly concerned about Afghanistan and China. But that is our principal real rival in the region. Ryan, what is your reaction to the way we have evacuated Afghanistan, and could it have been done better? It, it should have been done better, uh, and it, it, it's almost shameful. It is shameful uh, for a military-accomplished organization and country to do such a slipshod, slapstick method. And kudos to the uh, former uh, special forces groups and other veteran groups that stepped up and have forced the State Department to get uh, their act together. And I don't have any on-the-ground experience. I'm just going from what I've seen on TV and in the news reports. Uh, but it is not that reassurance of we're Americans, we know what we're doing, and we're going to do it to the best of our ability. It was kind of, um, hey, what are we doing and how are we doing it? And uh, somebody remembered to turn the lights out on our way out the door. And it's just not the way to do the business. Art, what's your assessment of the way it's been done? Well, I think the colonel is being extremely diplomatic and polite about this. I think the whole thing was utterly disgraceful and shameful. I'm surprised that senior officials, especially officers, didn't resign. Uh, in serious media, it's been revealed quite credibly that Biden and his immediate advisors, all Washington types, uh, directly overruled senior military officers 
who forcefully argued, no, the military should leave last. We should have a worst-case scenario that we're planning for so that if things start to collapse, we get as many people out before our military completely evacuates. The Taliban clearly broke and violated the agreement they had with the Trump administration, so we had perfect justification for leaving forces in-country. Where did they break it? They agreed that they would work with opposition elements to create a coalition government, and they agreed specifically that they would protect civilians, including vulnerable women, and they violated all of that. Did they did they violate that uh, instantly, or did that take a long time for uh, it to? Develop? I don't know, Bruce. It hasn't been going on that long, right? But as soon as soon as they made clear that they weren't living up to the agreement, we should have not lived up to it ourselves. And so our the Biden for, administration knew about that. If I may finish, so we should have implemented a worst case scenario right away. This isn't. Uh, Uh, 2020 hindsight. This was unfolding at a time when our president, I think, behaved in a disgraceful fashion. Okay. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Elk Grove Village. Thanks for joining us tonight. No, I... No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably... Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact 
of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont Packs, our last segment, and let's go to Stephen, who's listening to our broadcast this evening in Northern California. Go ahead, Stephen. Hey, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, thanks for giving me a chance to ask you a question. Good. Um, you know, you're talking about Afghanistan, and I just want to get your take. Um, you know, I, I don't have to be political or reserved about this, uh, but I'd be common sense. And nobody leaves a country and leaves $82 billion, with a B, dollars worth of equipment, unless that is intentional. And I wasn't sure about this until I started doing some looking, but it does turn out that Afghanistan sits on a lot of rare earth minerals, including about trillions of dollars of lithium. So I just wanted to get your question or your take on this. With the Great Reset, with, you know, moving you know, this global economy to, you know, an a electronic type of an infrastructure, is it possible that Joe Biden said to the Taliban, I'll let you take some power and $82 billion worth of American uh, military equipment, and then you help me get a good deal with China by giving them a trillion dollars or access to some rare earth min- minerals and lithium? All right, let's go to Ryan uh, Yantis to find out if any element of that conspiracy is believable to him. Hi, Stephen. Uh- Born and raised in California, went to col- or high school in uh, Rancho Cordova. So, you know, hope this helps. Um, yeah, I'm not an expert on, on this aspect of it, but what I would say is the Taliban is not a cohesive federal government that has a clear line of uh, control and authority. Uh, it's more like indigenous tribes and clans that have alliances within the 14 different languages and the different ethnic groups and subgroups in the various valleys. Now, they have to govern uh, a population of 28 million people, I think is what the number is, in an area the size of the state of Texas. And some of those 80-some-odd billion dollars, and I wouldn't really trust uh, Pentagon numbers and budgeteers because they have not been able to do a successful audit as long as I've been uh, associated with uh, the military. But the Taliban that don't have a strong, cohesive, uh, unified uh, chain of command now have all that equipment that they're going to have to maintain, train, uh, resupply, put ammo in if it requires ammo, and then operate. And if their predecessors, the Afghan National Forces, had been so formidable with it, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. So... It brings to question what was the quality of the stuff that was left and what are the prices that have been inflated. A question to you and to Edward. Edward, let me uh, let you respond first. The The official uh, report is that uh, Donald Trump said the other day, why didn't you just fly all that stuff out of the out of the country? This this happened at a time 
when the United States allegedly was trying to send a message to the Afghan people that their military uh, was supposed to be there to protect them when the United States left because they had been trained by the U.S. for 20 years and that if all of their uh, hardware suddenly started to be flown out of the country, it would have been a signal to the people of Afghanistan that the United States is pulling the rug out from the security forces that they wanted everybody to believe would be strong enough to withstand the Taliban. So what's your answer to that explanation uh, by, by many as to why they left $80 billion in military hardware there? Edward? Stephen, I'm sorry. Stephen, are you oh. there? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, oh, no, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, my, what, what's my explanation for why they left the $80 billion there? Yeah, well, well, I just, I just explained the official, the official answer to the question is uh, to pull yeah. all that stuff out in advance would have sent a signal that the uh, Afghan right. military wasn't up to the job and and they were pulling the rug out from them before the U.S. pulled out. No, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great counter question. I think it's one that needs to be considered. Uh, just yeah. the way that I look at it at the end of the day is that if I'm going to be responsible as the commander in chief, whether it's over 50 people or you know my installment within a country where we've it's been so important to us from a culture standpoint for so long, over two decades, I'm going to make sure that whether we have to do it covertly or we have to do it with some sort of a, um, a balance and we make, you know, good PR to the people there, if we can, you got to take that stuff out. And I, I just don't see any excuse for it because whether they can maintain it, use it in the long run, you don't need to be able to use it. You can take that, you can give it to enemies. You can let them understand the schematics recycle it you know I, I don't know all the ins and outs because i'm not a military man but um i know I, I think it's a great point and uh but but at that point if you're getting people out i just can't i just can't ask any other question that needs to be a top priority before you leave ryan let me ask in my this, opinion let me ask this to you ryan if um the government military it fell rather quickly okay would there been enough time from the moment it fell to the moment we pulled the last troops out? Would there have been enough time for the U.S. military that was remaining to go in? They they already reported that they 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 destroyed some of the some of the armaments. But would there have been enough time to fly out people to Qatar or someplace else to get it out of the country, um, or was there just not enough time to do it with any significant? degree of success. I, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of one of those amorphous questions. It's a lot of ifs. And I, I think that the amount of manpower, material, and aircraft that would be required to move that amount of equipment, and you would have to put it together in a prioritized list, what's the most vulnerable, what's the easiest and fastest to move, where is it, how do we get it loaded, and then, yes, you're signaling to the Afghan and to the international community and to the Taliban, hey, we're, you know, we're breaking camp and we're heading for the door. Now, I don't think there's anyone outside this administration that would say we did a good job getting out of Afghanistan. Uh, the other question that's probably more important to me is 
Uh, when we went into Afghanistan in 2001, uh, U.S. and NATO and allied forces were welcomed, and we had beaten the, the Taliban. The Taliban at one point raised their hand and said, we would like to discuss terms of surrender. And one of the critical mistakes in this conflict was not having those little buggers surrender because that would have gutted them as far as a future fighting force. The, the surrender of Japanese forces, the surrender of German forces, that took out the, um, well, we were uh, betrayed wherever. It, it, it neuters that argument. And the Taliban is, again, not a cohesive, one-size-fits-all force that is really controlling anything. Is there any mid, uh, Middle Eastern force art that you think will be viewed as supportive of the Taliban as they try to uh, expand their their control of Afghanistan? Or do you think it's going to be primarily, you, as you mentioned a little while ago, is it going to be China or some other force that isn't directly geographically close? Plus non-state actors like al-Qaeda and ISIS okay. and others. That doesn't mean that the Taliban's going to welcome them. The Gulf states, not all of them, but some of them welcome dark money, welcome corrupt money, and welcome profits from heroin and other things that is a part of the stock and trade in Afghanistan. I think there'll be a lot of efforts at deal-making with banks and with at least some states that don't want to be acknowledged. The as, I, as I mentioned, China, China, I think, is in terms of great power relations, is the nation to be concerned about. I agree with you. Conspiracy theories, it's good to be skeptical. But also your caller asked about minerals, rarely mentioned. Back during the Soviet invasion, we had an expert from the Afghan Studies Center, I think at the University of Nebraska. There aren't many of them. And he said mineral-rich Afghanistan. That's one reason why the Soviets uh, have invaded. But that was a very poor, if threatening, country. The Americans did not invade, with the UN and NATO, did not invade Afghanistan for mineral resources. And I don't think there are any conspiracy theories going on regarding Biden or anyone else. Is there any, is there any uh, evidence to suggest that the Taliban would have more of, a, of, of knowledge and more of a wherewithal to utilize not only the minerals, to develop the minerals, but also to utilize all the military hardware that's been left there? that they would be able to use it and abuse it better than the Afghan army, which didn't know how to use it and ran away when the shots were first fired. One, was, literally, would they have the ability to use all this stuff? They can learn. Uh, they if, can learn. If they Who's going to teach them? It, well, that, that's always the question. But they are a learning organization, then yes. But the Taliban, uh, the problem with their organization is it is a uh, theological zealotry, is, is their driving force. Mm -hmm. And they have so many other issues that are pressing. Um, they're also, I think, going to run into trouble, and Art touched on it, but the UAE and other Gulf states who have traditionally had the nod and wink, and there's been dark money flowing into Al-Qaeda and other groups. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saud, is officially diametrically opposed to the Taliban and the improvements on women's rights and other things in Saudi Arabia is kind of this awakening within 
the Islamic world. And what we're really, in my mind, seeing is fracturing in the Islamic world between the Sunni, the Shia, the Wahhabist, and uh, there is going to be some sort of challenge to the Orthodox. Will there be a challenge to those U.S. communities that accept the refugees from Afghanistan as it relates to the Sunni-Shia split? That's the question, the response, when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, well, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. (laughs) 
Bruce Dumont back. We are on the air, and the microphones are all open. Maybe they've been open a little early, but we're back. Um, Sunni Shia. Uh, during the um, process that's going on now, allegedly in the United States, allegedly in Qatar and other countries, determining which people get on the plane to come to the United States, this vetting process, uh, how much of the vetting needs to be about whether a person is uh, Shia or uh, Sunni? Is that an important? That's an important determination. Americans have been learning about that for decades now, at least two decades. Is that an important question when a community decides whether or not they want to accept refugees who are predominantly Sunni or Shia, or is that something that they have to be separated before we invite them to communities of the United States? Ryan. And that is a great question, and I'm not sure of the answer. I think if you had a Shia, uh, uh, Shiite dominant or majority community, and you had a sudden influx of Afghan Sunnis who don't speak the same language and don't have the same cultures, because you have the sects within Islam, and then you still have the underlying uh, ethnic makeup of the refugees. So uh, mixing in different refugees from different countries and different languages, different cultures and customs, um, you're not going to have just easy melting pot scenarios. Art Seer, is this this a big, serious problem that those who are bringing refugees to the United States have to consider, or is it, am I overstating the potential combustibility of it? No, it's a very imaginative question. It's Thank one that's you. not asked or discussed. We don't ask sectarian questions, as we all know, in coming into the United States. Vietnam, the several hundred thousand boat people that came in, there were Montagnard tribes people who were vital allies of U.S. Special Forces. Mm-hmm. They don't get along uh, with other populations in Vietnam, and I do know directly special efforts were made mm-hmm. to put them in parts of the country where they might get along. They're eth- ethnologically very similar to Native Americans. So you find um, Hmong, for instance, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and, yeah, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. That kind of thing should be considered by our government, but I'm not aware of anything like that in terms of um, the enormous Islamic population and the large number of refugees coming mm-hmm. into this country. It's kind of an un-American question. It's a good question, but it's kind of un-American. We, didn't, we tend not to think that way, Bruce, so thank you very much. Thank well, you but, for that insight. That's but, extremely but, worthwhile. But I do believe that you may view it as un-American. I may agree with that, but what I'm just saying is that I think... Uh, whereas the initial response, at least by the media, was that we had all of these, uh, you know, eighty, ninety thousand uh, uh, U.S. English interpreters that were working for the United States, and we trying to trying to view that all eighty thousand of them, you know, are great people and love America and would be a great addition to the country. When you begin to look into that, obviously, uh, how many of those that were involved were only involved for mercenary reasons? Well, I would think there's a significant number that were involved just for mercenary reasons. Now, should they be separated out? Should they get a plus? Should they get a star on their on their helmet? Whatever happens. But the other aspect of it is uh, is is the religious aspect. I mean, if if they're not getting along 
in Afghanistan, uh, is there danger to bring them to the United States and put them in the middle of Nebraska? Very insightful. Very question. And I don't think it's. Yeah. A, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's meant to be an anti-American. It, it's an issue. How do we? No, no, just how do we assimilate? Egalitarian. That's the only point. It's, it's not the way Americans look at things. That's all. Right. And also, I mean, my impression is when I think of Afghanistan and when I think of those that were helping the United States, I'm thinking primarily of an agrarian society, people in the mountains. I'm not. I'm not thinking about business people working, uh, you know, in in Kabul. And so I'm, you know, I'm offering my own assessment as to well, let's let's put them in a in a in a farm rich country or a countries capitals or counties of the United States because they'll be comfortable in Nebraska or Montana. I suggested a couple of weeks ago I bring them all to Montana, and I got a lot of response to that because the people in Montana uh, don't necessarily like them, uh, or they 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 don't dislike them, but they are suspicious of them. Mm. And you know, you you put you put a couple of thousand people, just a couple of thousand people. You put them in the middle of uh, of Holland, Michigan, where I spent much of last weekend. That dramatically changes the you know the complexion, no pun intended, of of Holland, mm-hmm. Michigan. I mean, it, it will completely change a society wherever you put them, even if you are putting them in smaller numbers. You're not going to put eighty thousand people anywhere. I wouldn't think. But if you take, uh, let's arbitrarily just make up a scenario where you have a airplane of Afghan refugees and you have 60 Tajik and 30 Pashtun and then the rest are other smaller minority groups. Right. But you've broken them out of their, their clan and tribe, uh, but you have a nat- natural schism that is ages and ages old between the Pashtun and the Tajik, and now you're going to import them into a new environment in arbitrarily the middle of Nebraska. Probably not going to be real happy unless there is, uh, uh, and even given uh, the, the warrior culture of Afghanistan and the fierce independence that they have. And that's part of why Afghanistan has become the graveyard of the empires is because of the, the hard-nosed resilience of those individuals. But the Pashtun and the Tajik are not going to like each other or want to work together. And now you're forcing them into an, an environment where they have to. And that or they're coming, they're coming to a community uh, where women uh, are, are highly visible, highly active, highly educated, yep. uh, where you've got gays and lesbians walking down the street. I mean, these are, these are monumental uh, you know, assaults on, on, on the way they live their lives. And yep. again... Plus, learning a, a new language, and good luck with that. I mean, at least if they are all, at least if they know English, um, that's good. But not not if anyone else in uh, Minnesota or whatever the state is knows Patish, they may not know the other languages. Yep. Up. Our thanks to Ryan Yantis. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank Joe Dittmar, thank you very much for being with us in our first segment. Art Sear, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. One I'm in Bruce three Dumont. adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, 
your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. 